church, and also a member of the larger body of believers around the world. I think it's important to say that, um, to always remember that there's something more happening. God is doing so much more than what he's been doing here and what he desires to do here. We're part of a bigger um, collective um, of God's kingdom. As you know, we are in a season of Lent. We're marching and approaching um, Easter. And so the disciplines that we're going to be focusing on this week are hospitality and fasting. And first about hospitality, what I want to say about that is there's an opportunity. We all have an opportunity to reach out to somebody, whether it's somebody here at Grace that you don't know very well or somebody who you know who's not part of a community group. It's an opportunity for us to say, hey, come on over. Let's, let's break bread together. Let's have a meal together. Or let's go out for lunch. Let's go grab some coffee. Or let's go to dinner together. So just want to encourage that. Um, Grace group leaders, um, definitely encourage you all to do that as well. And in terms of fasting, you know, I really believe that with fasting, part of what happens with fasting is that we, we say to God, my hunger for food is not greater than my hunger for you. I'm willing to put my hunger for food to the side for a moment to say that I hunger and thirst for you even more, God. What a practice. What a, what a moment to, to enter into a time when we, wanna, when we can focus on God and we say, God, I'm, I'm here. I'm, I'm focusing on you. I'm giving you my attention. So encouraging you to, to participate in that throughout this week. As I was preparing um, yesterday and reviewing and kind of going over the message, I, I realized something. I, I kind of have two sermons. It's like, whoa, I don't think people can sit through two sermons in one Sunday. I don't know about that. And so here's, it's going to be a little different than maybe um, what the introduction mentioned in the, uh, in the email but the, the essence of the message is still there. And so here's what's going to happen. This is what I imagine is going to happen. Instead of you hearing two sermons today, so you'll hear one message. And in the future, there'll probably be some kind of a blog post or something related to the second thing that I wanted to say. So as a young boy in Haiti, I grew up in a culture where it was as common for a family to hire a house helper as to own a car. The term used in Haiti for a person who lives and works in a household as a cook or housekeeper, landscaping, yard worker is restavec, which literally translated means stay with. A young man named Sonel worked for and lived with my family for about three years, and my parents provided for his basic needs, food, uniform and tuition for school, shelter, and that was his compensation. He didn't receive an allowance or a wage because those were not the terms of the arrangement. In some ways, he was part of our family, but in other ways, in other more fundamental ways, he was an outsider. But Sunel was my friend. As is typical, typically true of kids, we got along better on some days than others. And although I was nine or ten, I was very aware of the power difference between us. Many times when I was upset because I was not getting my way, I would try to exert that authority to manipulate a situation in my favor. And there's a particular interaction between us that sticks out in my mind. 
A time when we were playing outside in the early evening. Some of the details are a little fuzzy. I don't exactly remember what we were playing. We were probably playing soccer with tennis balls. That's sometimes what we did. And at some point, I felt slighted. I, I felt that something he said or did just didn't ring well with me. And all these years later, I'm not really sure what it was, but this I remember distinctly. I was filled with so much frustration and anger that I, I picked up a large rock and threw it in his direction. Thankfully, he was far away, and the dark threw off my aim, so the rock didn't hit him. But at the time, I had no fear about the consequences of my actions, none whatsoever. Somewhere deep inside, I felt justified in my behavior because Sonel and I were from different walks of life. Pray with me. God, we say be exalted in this place. Find a worship that is worthy of who you are. Worship through our songs, through our prayers, through our conversations with one another. Be exalted. Holy Spirit, come and do what truly only you can do. Come and breathe on this passage, on this word, and teach us. Help us to see Jesus. Help us to see ourselves better and help us to see each other rightly. We pray, God, that you would be continuing to work uh, to Frame our imagination, for, for our imagination to be gospel-centered. We thank you for hearing us and for working and moving on our behalf today. In Jesus' mighty name. In today's passage, we're again sitting at the feet of Jesus. As he is teaching his disciples and, and the Pharisees and others in the crowd. Last week, we heard from John Farthing, and, and he helped us see the demonstration of an extravagant love from a father towards his two sons. Today, Jesus is continuing to teach. He's going to tell us about these two men who came from different walks of life. And so as we prepare to, to delve into our passage, I, I want to point out a few things that I think will be helpful for us to better frame our reading and our understanding of the passage. So here are some of them right here. Dozens of stories about the pearly gates were circulating among people during the first century. Um, this parable is not an explanation of Jesus' perspective on the afterlife. I think for me, when I first read this passage a long, long time ago, I was like, okay, is this how this works? If I am wealthy and rich, I'm qualified for hell, and if I am poor, then I am qualified for heaven. No, that's not what Jesus is saying. He is not laying out his doctrine of hell in this parable. Number three, this is the only biblical parable in which Jesus provides the name of one of the characters, Lazarus which means the one whom God helps. Luke also 
singles out the Pharisees as people who were part of the audience listening to Jesus. And he does so in verse 14. He says that the Pharisees were lovers of money. Pharisees were those who were part of, they were part of the middle class. And it specifically says in verse 14 that they were lovers of money. The description of the rich man's garments, the fact that he was dressed in purple and fine linen, provides clues about the vastness of his wealth. That if we don't understand uh, and, and know what those terms mean, we might just pass it by and think, okay, yeah, maybe he had a few thousand dollars, but he was very, very wealthy. This man was very, very wealthy. Next, begging was a recognized profession for those who had a visible disability that made it impossible for them to work. And so this man, Lazarus, was physically unable to take himself anywhere. Friends and family had to carry him to the gate. The dogs provided actually a service to Lazarus by licking his wounds. And you're now thinking, that's gross, Lucian. But let me say a little bit more about that. Um, it's not adding insult to injury. What the dogs are doing is, was part of, of a ritual, a healing ritual that was present in the 3rd and 5th century B.C. in ancient Ashkelon. And the belief was that when people were, had sores or wounds, that the dogs licking them would help them heal. And more recent research has actually proven that the saliva of dogs actually has certain antibiotics that helps with healing. So if you're a dog lover and you're not feeling well, hey, man's best friend can come in handy right there. Okay, let's jump into our passage, and I will read it in your hearing. There was a rich man who dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. But at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, whose body was covered with sores, who longed to eat what fell from the rich man's table, and the dogs came and licked his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell, as he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far off with Lazarus at his, at his side. So he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in anguish in this fire. But Abraham said, child, my child, remember that in your lifetime you receive good things and Lazarus likewise bad things, and now he is comforted. He is comforted here, and you are in anguish. Besides all this, a great chasm has been fixed between us so that those who want to cross over from here to you cannot do so, and no one can cross from there to us. So the rich man said, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have four, five brothers, to warn them so that they don't come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. They must respond to them. Then the rich man said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And Abraham replied to him, If they do not respond to Moses and the prophets, 
they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. So as part of our message today, we're going to look at the three exchanges between the rich man and Abraham. And we want to make some determinations about what each statement could be teaching us about God and about ourselves. So let's just jump in. The first statement, the first exchange between the rich man and Abraham. So the rich man calls out and says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in, my, in water and cool my tongue because I am in anguish in this fire. But Abraham said, Child, Remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus likewise bad things, and now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. Besides all this, a great chasm has been fixed between us, so that those who want to cross over from here to you cannot, cannot do so, and no one can cross from here to us. What we see there with the rich man is pretty interesting. One we notice that the rich man knows who Lazarus is. Which means in some ways that there had been some interaction, maybe not interpersonal interaction, but some interaction. Maybe um, the rich man would leave his house and walk over Lazarus from time to time. Maybe he would see him and, and go to the side. But he knew who he was. And so he's, he's appealing to Abraham and says, hey, you know what? Send Lazarus. I know who he is. I, I'm rich. Lazarus is poor. Go ahead and, and have him come and serve me. Man, what's, what a, a measure of self-absorption that even in the afterlife, in the framework of this parable at least, the rich man is still seeing himself above Lazarus. The second thing is that um, Lazar, um, the rich man doesn't recognize that everything that he had was a gift from God. That his nationality, his connection to, the, to Abraham was not going to be a ticket or a card of exemption and influence. So he's like, hey, Father Abraham, hey, you know, we're part of the same nation. We're, hey, my fellow brother. Jewish brother, can you help me out? Can you do something for me? That wasn't going to work there. In Abraham's re response, we see a call to repentance. He says, hey, rich man, remember. Remember. Take a moment to reflect and realize the gifts and opportunities you received. What did you do with that? You had much, and Lazarus had not, not much at all. You had good things. Lazarus had bad things. What did you do with the gifts and opportunities you were given? In the second exchange, the rich man then responds and says, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers to warn them so that they don't come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. They must respond to them. Again, we see, you know, the, the rich man is saying, hey, why don't you send Lazarus to, to help out my family? Because, again, 
I'm above Lazarus, and if somebody's going to go, go ahead and send Lazarus. But it's a little bit different this time. There's a measure of recognition and a, and a measure of desperation. He's like, hey, you know what? I'm recognizing that my brothers who are still living, they're just like me. And man, if I ended up here, they need help too. And so in this exchange, he's looking a little bit beyond himself. Maybe he's heeding the counsel of Abraham a little bit. But in Abraham's response, Abraham tells him, you know what? God has revealed himself. God has made provisions for you to know him. He's provided Moses and the prophets to reveal who God is. And that is sufficient. That is sufficient for you. In the third exchange, the rich man said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And he replied to him, Abraham did, If they do not respond to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. The rich man is not satisfied with that response. He's saying it's not enough that God has revealed himself and continues to do so. He requires a sign that meets his specification and his expectations. He's like, okay, you know what, Abraham, I know you're saying that the prophets and Moses were sent. I think I want something different. That's not exactly what I want. I want something different. A measure still of entitlement and self-absorption is, is popping up again. And you know what? Sometimes we do that ourselves. We say, the information that I have is not quite enough. God, if you showed up in this way, if you, do, if you did this or that, then I would know you're there. Then I would know that I can trust you. And then I would know that I'm safe, that I'm okay. We try to have our own specification. And Abraham's response is, is pretty stern here. And it's, it's a condemnation. Saying what God has provided is enough. If you are not willing to embrace and accept God's pursuit, that will only produce separation. This great chasm that Abraham refers to. In the end, the stubborn desire to seek pleasure and satisfaction apart from God is granted, and the separation becomes permanent. If you notice, when Lazarus is found at the bosom of Abraham, Jesus says that he is comforted. What isn't mentioned? There's no mention of his hunger. There's no mention of his sores or his disability. Jesus tells us that Lazarus is comforted. That made me think a little bit. And perhaps what Lazarus longed for the most beyond the satisfaction of his hunger and the healing of his body, was communion and fellowship at the table of the rich man. 
Even when he says, man, I, I, I would be okay with getting the crumbs from your table. In order for him to get the crumbs from the table, he would have to be in the room. Like being able to even be in the room was something that Lazarus desired. Did that need for comfort jump out at you? Did that jump out at you when we were reading the first part of the parable? It didn't really jump out for me. I was more focused on, on what, I, what I could see, which was, hey, this guy is, has a disability. He's probably hungry. He needs help. He's sick. And yes, it's important to, to notice those things and to, to meet the needs of people in those ways. We certainly have been given opportunities and resources that can be used to extend love to others. And when I say love, I mean love that looks like dignity, love that looks like honor, love that looks like respect. And really, I want to be clear here. I'm not only talking about the way we treat people that are in a different socioeconomic status than us. That's not what I'm talking about, really. Regardless of socioeconomic status, God is calling us with the resources that we have and the opportunities that we have to extend dignity and honor and respect to one another. It goes beyond doing what we promised and walking away. It's not like we go up to the bank teller, I'd like to make a deposit, please. Thank you. And then we walk away. It goes beyond that. When we, when we are treating each other with dignity, honor, and respect, we're not only seeking to meet a need, but to actually say, hey, I'm, I'm here with you. Not only do I offer the things that I can help you with, but I offer myself. I bring myself into this picture. I offer myself. And maybe, the, and maybe Lazarus was saying, hey, I'd, I'd like to be in relationship with you. I'd like to be in fellowship with you. Above and beyond what you can do for the sores on my body and my disability and my hunger, I actually want to be in fellowship with you. God is calling us to see each other and to be people who provide comfort to extend the ministry of Abraham in the parable to whomever the Lord puts on our path. The minister of Abraham in the parable, Lazarus, was next to him. Abraham was providing comfort to Lazarus. Okay, I want us to do an exercise here. We're going to do this together. I want you to keep your eyes on me, okay? Don't look to the left or to the right. Just for a moment, just keep your eyes on me. That's, that's an important part of this exercise. Until I say go, okay? So for now, if you weren't looking already. <laughs> okay, so here's what we're going to do. When I say go in a moment, I want you to take a moment to look around the room. Um, for anybody that you don't know or you don't know very well, all I want you to do when you find that person, eyes on me, I see people looking around, follow directions. 
Look right here for now. And for those of you who are listening on the podcast, ask Holy Spirit to bring the picture of somebody's face or the name of somebody, okay? So everybody can still participate. So when I say go, I want you to look around for somebody you don't know very well or somebody you don't know at all. And in your mind, I want you to say to that person or say to yourself, I need you. Okay, go. When we live together with these three words, I need you, embedded in our hearts, we are being obedient to Jesus, the one whom we belong to in some very important ways. I was thinking about this passage in 1 Corinthians 12, and I, and I thought it'd be important to share with you all today. So please listen intently. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body through many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker or in, are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our, unpre and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. You know, as we submit to the work of Holy Spirit moment by moment, we will live with one another in the ways that reflects the picture of the body of Christ in 1 Corinthians 12. It takes work. It takes work. It takes a giving of ourselves to one another. It takes showing up, showing up here, showing up to, to Grace Group. The only way we can truly reflect that is together. I cannot represent the body of Christ by myself. That's not how God intended it to be. He intended for us to fit together, to work. Just like the illustration that I used earlier with the kids, that was his intention. To reveal the Father through the body. And as we grow together in unity and honor for one another, the kingdom principles of love, mercy, and hope and faith can be extended 
with the dignity to people around us of all walks of life. I'm going to ask the worship team to, to come on up. We've heard the word of God today. And there's always an opportunity to respond. There are three ways that we can respond, at least three ways that you can respond today. There's an invitation at this table. The juice that represents the blood of Jesus and, and the cracker that represents his body. Another way you can respond is by supporting God's mission here through the giving from your resources. And we can also respond in worship. And that means musical worship. That means in prayer. That means in solitude. Jesus made a way for us to cross over the great chasm between us and God. Jesus became acquainted with our condition by becoming like us. He took on our shame in exchange for his honor and his dignity. There's another chasm that he crossed that he invites us to follow him in. He also crossed over the chasm that is fixed between one person and another. The chasm that often exists between us. And that chasm is filled with, with blame, with self-sufficiency, with guilt and rage and self-centeredness and, and shame and oppression, lust and hate and violence. But Jesus, by his blood, by his sacrifice on the cross, has reconciled us to one another and reconciled us to the Father. As we prepare to receive these elements, pray with me. We do not presume to come to thy table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in thy manifold and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table, but thou art the same Lord, whose property is always to have mercy.